that was the paradox of it. This is another ism that's backwards. Is the minute I could tell that story, like I say it to you, is the minute it lost its grip on me. Similarly to when I accepted I was powerless alcohol, alcohol lost its grip in me. I went from victim and trying to hide something to willing participant and saying, I choose to. I didn't choose to get f***ing raped, but I do choose to live with it and talk about it openly because it doesn't define me. And I do choose to understand that you or any listener here or anybody I told the story to could have whatever opinion they want of me. That's their business. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, my little chickadees. That was the voice of Mr. Andrew A. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode, the one you're listening to right here, Right now is brought to you by Mr. Micah and Ms. Eleanor. You know what Micah and Eleanor did? They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Micah and Eleanor, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to you guys. As usual, we're going to let some of the other folks listen on in along with us, but this one is going out right to you guys. And I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. All right. So it's been a, uh, I don't know, a uh, <clears throat> rough uh, couple of weeks here only because I got sick, right? My family all got it. My First, my son got it. Then my daughter got the flu. Actually, I didn't get that. And then my wife got really sick. And then I got it on the tail end. And, uh, and for those of you who are in the same boat, I feel for you. I really do. Sometimes it feels like that the sickness is just going to last forever. But as we all know, it never does last forever. Uh, but that's what my little pea brain tells me is that I'm going to be like this forever, but I'm really not. But anyway, the only reason I bring up being sick is because of this. I was I was in bed the other night. I had basically a kind of a, a lost a lot of my voice and I just wasn't feeling why, you know the thing. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm flipping through the TV stations trying to find just anything to watch to kind of take my mind off of what was going on. And I landed on this uh, 
<clears throat> I guess you call them documentaries or rockumentaries is when they you have a documentary about rock and roll. I think there's an actual term for that nowadays. Anyway, this rockumentary was about the making of the album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. And it kind of highlighted the the working relationship between Elton John, the musician, obviously, and Bernie Toppin, who was his lyricist, and, and how they worked together. How they worked together was like lightning in a bottle. Um, basically, what would happen, from my understanding of watching this the other night, is that Bernie Toppin would write down all the lyrics to the songs, like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or whatever it was, and then he would hand those lyrics to Mr. Elton John, and Elton John would make a song out of it. So from there, I started thinking about their relationship and about how it was just the right time and about how uh, what what great music they made. And then I started thinking about Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith and about how they too balanced each other out perfectly. You know, Bill Wilson was kind of the uh, out front man, if you will. And uh, Dr. Bob was kind of willing to keep a relatively low profile and he wanted to keep the focus on simple things. And so from there, I started thinking about AA and how grateful I am for AA about how this society has helped me to stay away from a drink a few 24 hours now by the grace of God. And because of that, I have been giving, I have been given a breadth and depth and weight to my life. And, uh, uh, it has just added so much to my time here on earth. And then from that point, I started to think about all of you beautiful souls who are out there and how much I care for you and how over the moon grateful I am that God has connected all of us, not just me to you, but connecting all of us in so many meaningful ways. And so that was what was going through my mind as I was laying in bed the other night, uh, considering all this. And then so, and then I started thinking about Dr. Bob and his farewell talk. And so I went and I looked it up. And by the way, if anybody wants to find this, all you got to look up is Dr. Bob's farewell talk. Uh, and uh, this was in, when was this? This was in 1950, July 30th, 1950. And this was Bob's remarks at the first international AA convention in Cleveland, Ohio. And by this time, Dr. Bob had been fairly, or he was, uh, his health was uh, in poor condition, I'll put it that way. And uh, he came out and he gave a very brief speech and it said this, my good friends in AA and of AA, I get a big thrill out of looking over a vast sea of faces like this with a feeling that possibly some small thing I did a number of years ago played an infinitely small part in making this meeting possible. I also get quite a thrill when I think that we all had the same problem. We all did the same things. We all get the same results in proportion to our zeal and enthusiasm and stick to 
If you will pardon the injection of a personal note at this time, let me say I have been in bed five of the last seven months and my strength hasn't returned as I would like. So my remarks of necessity will be very brief. There are two or three things that flashed into my mind on which it would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is our simpl- is the simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual AA work. Our 12 steps, when simmered down to the last, resolve themselves into the words, quote, love and service, unquote. We understand what love is and we understand what service is. So let's bear those two things in mind. Let us also remember to guard that erring member of the tongue. If we must use it, let's use it with kindness and consideration and tolerance. And one more thing. None of us would be here today if somebody hadn't taken time to explain to us, to give us a little pat on the back, to take us to a meeting or two, to do numerous little kind and thoughtful acts on our behalf. So let us never get such a degree of smug complacency that we're not willing to extend or attempt to extend to our less fortunate brothers that help, which has been so beneficial to us. Thank you very much. And that was Dr. Bob once again at the first international convention in 1950. And uh, I just love his farewell talk. And for whatever reason, that was on my mind. Hopefully that's what somebody needed to hear today. All right, now on to Mr. Andrew A. This episode, folks, is not for those, um, how do I put this? For the faint of heart, uh, if colorful language or sometimes disturbing topics are not your bag, uh, how do my kids say it? If it's not your jam, please stop the episode now and... Point yourself to one of our other 110 plus episodes, however many we have on there. We are calling this one Via Con Dios, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. We discuss, by the way, for Andrew, I had to learn from, if you were listening at the very beginning of this episode, you will notice that I had to bleep out a couple of his, couple of his words. That was the first time I actually had to learn how to use the bleep function in editing software. So <laughs> thank you very much, Andrew. Anyway, we discuss in this uh, episode, or Andrew discusses, the psychology of, sob- of sobriety. We talk about sexual abuse. Uh, we talk about how intelligence can be an impediment to getting sober. We talk about the complexities of surviving a long-term marriage and sobriety and much more. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, ado, please welcome my friend, Andrew A. Enjoy. Oh, and we'll have listener feedback and some other treats at the end of this uh, episode. Okay, everybody, so today we are sitting here 
once again with Mr. Andrew A. So first of all, Andrew, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, please. Yeah, so Andrew, alcoholic, and I got sober late May of the year 2000. So do you actually have a date? Do you know the date? I've heard you say you're, you say May 2000 all the time. Yeah, it's, I've gone back 19 years on the calendar and trying to figure out, did I get drunk on Friday or Saturday? And then there's this other part of me that goes, maybe it was Thursday. All I know is that my wife was out of town and I went totally off the rails. <laughs> and there was a, there was, it was towards the end of the month. So I just take a range and I don't take a chip usually till like the very end of the month, just to be safe. <laughs> Okay, so I know that we have a lot of Spanish-speaking people who listen to the podcast now. Mm -hmm. So why don't you go ahead, give your sobriety date in Spanish, and say whatever you want to say in Spanish. Um, and it's been a while since I've been gone. So it's uh, Mayo del Año 2000, and probably the most Spanish I say now is Vaya con Dios o que Dios te cuide which is go with God or may God keep you safe. Very nice. Those are the two that I would spit out to my children as they're leaving the house. I got you. <laughs> yeah. And so tell people where you're from originally. Yeah, originally I grew up in Venezuela. Uh, my dad was an American expat working down there. And then at age 14, so it was probably early 80s, I think it was like 82, 83, we relocated back to California, which is where he's from. Uh, the company he was working with had finished their project down there, but he had lived down there for 20 plus years. So uh, I moved to Oakland and I learned Spanish at age 14. So <laughs> that will put this, I'm a Hispanic guy that looks white and moved into a black neighborhood. <laughs> so, yeah, there, is, there are several talents I've picked up there, you know, like being able to like run and box at the same time. <laughs> run and box. Run and box at the same time. To this, I haven't been there in probably 40 years. And, uh, and I live in a suburban area. I mean, like you can leave your door open kind of place. I know not the rest of the world's like this, but. And when my, I'm leaving with my kids, I'm like, did you tie your shoes? They're like, what do you mean? And I said, oh, you were, a fight might break out. <laughs> it's been so ingrained in me. You know, like I don't really, when we go sit down, my wife sits against the wall and I sit facing her. You know, it's like good and bad. Number one is I get to focus all my attention on her when we're talking, which eliminates the, are you listening to me argument? But I am nervous as shit with my back against the door. You know, I like to be the other way around. I, I rarely ever walk into anywhere knowing how am I going to get out of there. You know, that's interesting now that you say that because I know that you, when you come to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings uh, at the Frisco Group, yep. you, for the most part, sit with your, you won't have your back to the door, I'll put it that way. No, no. I I, I don't know what that's all about, man. I mean, it's just, you, you're a small kid in a very violent city. And there's no, there's nothing you can do but just escape whatever happens. And, you know, I've seen fistfights on a bus and you know, you're always just waiting for something to explode. So I'm 50 years old and I can go to Oakland, California or downtown Houston or South Florida. If the shit looks like it's going to blow up any second, I'm in heaven. <laughs> I am totally like my cortisol levels are heightened and my dopamine is kicking in and we're like, this is fantastic. We might die any second. 
I, I get to downtown any suburban area and like where there's traffic around a Target or Walmart and I'm pissed off as hell. It's totally backwards. I don't know why, but that's just how the wiring got done. <laughs> okay, so let me let me uh, set this up just a little bit here. So we had Andrew on the podcast, and this is back on episode 12. Okay, so this mm-hmm. was back at the very beginning. And uh, the name of episode 12 is General Patton's view on muffin tops. <laughs> so, you know, I remember coming out of that thinking, what am I going to title this episode? And for whatever reason, between you and I talking about it is what we came up with. So why don't you, first of all, explain to people, oh, and the reason that Andrew's back is because I've had several people after listening to that, multiple people after listening to that episode say, hey, when are you going to have that Andrew A. guy back on? <laughs> he is a hoot, okay? So why don't you go ahead and explain explain to people why we called that episode General Patton's view on muffin tops. There was, uh, well, I work with my committee quite a bit. Okay, explain your committee. (laughs) Yes, so I have, they're all, for the most part, they have all been identified. Uh, There's a band of uh, ninjas. We don't know them by name. They just show up whenever the hell they want. And I could be making pancakes, and then suddenly it just explodes in between my ears. Okay, but it's right. So people know this is like what's going. When you say your committee, it's what's going. It's on what's in going your on in between my ears. Yeah, but there are three or four steady characters, and Patton is one of them. And so it's always like the George C. Scott with the riding boots in front of the American flag. That's basically, I could, um, I could think. This did not go my way, or I'm a loser, or whatever. Just whatever thought shows up. I don't know where they come from. They just show up. And Patton is in between my ears. And then he just goes into full-on screaming at me mode. Like, you fucking piece of shit. You should have fixed this thing a long time ago. And sometimes he jumps up and defends me. It's rare. But Patton is really the one that um, badgers the shit out of me. It's probably the encapsulation of my mother talking to me. <laughs> like older cousins. But uh, the muffin top situation came about when I was putting on weight and uh, I was wearing like extra large shirts to hide my muffin top. And I just remember looking in the mirror and Patton was alive and well going like, look at you, little tubby, you fucking cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's pretty much how it came about. But it doesn't matter what's going on. One of these guys is going to come out because in the polar opposite, I got a dude that looks like a NASA administrator, you know, the white short sleeve shirt, pocket protector, black tie. And uh, he's always walking around with a coffee cup. He's pretty much the one that's trying to keep the monkeys off the panel. But he's always on break. So we don't know if we're going to, we don't know if he'll make his 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the one who eats a lot? What's her name? Oh, shit. Yeah. My alter ego, Ashley. You know, if I, if I get around, if like I've, I always remember there, there's, I'm an emotional eater among many, many things, you know, but, um, Sometimes I'll have like an upsetting phone call and um, I wake up like Harrison Ford in that movie, The Fugitive. Like I just come to and there's open peanut butter and jelly container and a big ass spoon. And I'm like, and the gallon of milk is right there. I'm like, what just happened? I I blacked out and started emotionally eating. (laughs) And so 
<laughs> the, the the person driving that is my alter ego, Ashley. Ashley's a little fat ass. Ashley likes a lot of Snicker bars and a lot of Babe Ruth's. Uh, she thinks, you know, 100 grand bars are delicious. Like, who the fuck eats dehydrated rice covered in chocolate? But I, Ashley does. <laughs> she, thinks, she thinks they're great. So, yeah, we're always trying to keep Ashley at bay. <laughs> I should probably name the the... The NASA guy, Terrence. Terrence has got to get on Ashley's ass. <laughs> <laughs> but the way Ashley is used, that name is used in our household now because my oh, wife, really? my wife listened to your episode oh. and she said, oh, "Look, Ashley's coming out with me today." I, yeah, I could be neck deep into some like sour cream and cheese chips and eating salami wrapped in Swiss. Cheese. I mean, look, I I I'm a chef by training, but for the most part, I still eat like a 14 year old stoner. <laughs> so, like, I could have hot dogs wrapped in a tortilla with hot Cheetos, dude. <laughs> Ashley is doing pirouettes in my brain when that's going on. She's like, this is great. She's like, has, she has me giggle at some of the shit we eat. Oh, okay. All right. So right off the bat, we got off track and that's okay. Uh, I love it. I, I knew we'd get off track. So, all right. So back to the steps and sobriety and all that kind of stuff, right? right because yeah. that's what this thing's supposed that's to be That's exactly about, it, right? yeah. All right, so I, I know that, okay, you have what I would call a different way many times, not only of looking at life in general, but a different way of looking at sobriety and how you navigate it and um, the I, I guess the psychology, if you will, of mm-hmm. sobriety. Yeah, Talk to me about how maybe you see things a little bit differently than others. Uh, well, I don't know. Let's see. Probably, I know, okay, this is how I determine when I see things different than other people. I have enough emotional intelligence that when I'm sharing, you sense the mood in the room change. Some people are rolling their eyes. And I think the biggest one is I don't take it too seriously. Um. But I don't take it too seriously as in the sense of uh, half-assing it. I just don't take it too seriously in the sense that if it doesn't work out the way I think it should work out, I'm okay with it. So I spent a lot of time detached from outcome. And I think that's a lot of what got me drunk. You know, I wasn't where I wanted to be or where I thought I deserved to be. So I was always looking at like an end result. And that's, and if I didn't hit that result, then emotionally I would do whatever I did. And look, everybody reacts to their disappointment's different, right? Some people go shopping, some people go fucking, some people go to Vegas and gamble shit. I just, I, my, um, my brand was alcohol, you know? So, um, where I look at it very differently, and I, I take humor very, very seriously. That's another one that, uh, it, it's one of my Andrew isms, you know, where I have to flip this thing and I have to deconstruct it and reconstruct it and re-engineer it so that it works for me. And so the biggest one is I find most of my power and vulnerability and in being honest, uh, I find most of my power in focused in the effort as opposed to what the end result would look like. And what's crazy about it is that in, my alcoholism, you know, at 19 years sober, and I, I first walked into these rooms at age 13. I didn't get sober till I was 30, 31. And um, I had come in and out a lot. But one of the biggest things for me was just to be able to, uh, as unique as I thought I wanted to be, or as unique as I thought I was, you know, very quickly realize you're unique, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came to 
look, just go engage on the effort, start doing the work. Whether I did it right or not, it didn't matter. The number one objective was just don't drink. Because once, you know, we know this, or I get, and I have years and years of that heartbreak of where I woke up and said, I'm not going to do this again. And around 2, 3 p.m., all of a sudden the craving comes back and then I'm drinking. My motor skills are shot to shit, but my head is very, very clear going, there you go. And then Patton is alive and well around that time. Here you go, you fucking loser. You fucked it up again. You're good for nothing. Just go ahead and accept who you are. And so that internal self-talk was so aggressive that I had to take that and just kind of flip it and understand that me talking to me that way was really coming from a place of love. And so I started accepting, I started realizing that I'm perfectly imperfect. So I embraced a lot of the shit that I was avoiding. Mm -hmm. And AA was great in stopping the drinking, but like we say, it's never the drinking, it's the thinking. That's the good news and the bad news, right? Like the good news is you don't have to drink again. The bad news is you you are wherever the hell you you are, and then having to deal with that um, reality that I just wasn't processing information the way I needed to, and I understood the allergy. I understood um, different things, but the answer was not going to be good enough for me. I wanted to deconstruct it a little bit more and then flip it on its side. Mostly, it, this is the basis of it, but you know, it, the way I drank was always the same. And so I created a pattern. And when I started getting sober, I was still being drawn towards that pattern. So what got me to look internally quite a bit was to learn what the pattern was. And then number two, how do I break that pattern? So talk about that. Yeah, so when I would overindulge in alcohol, I knew two things about me around three, four o'clock is when I really loved the craving. I wanted to be buzzing by sunset. And I also loved drinking on an empty stomach. The last time I knew that around two or three o'clock, I was, that was my cycle. That's when I wanted to start getting drunk and I hated drinking with a full stomach. So I joke about, I would go to Taco Bell every day at around four and look for five bucks. You eat like your royalty there. <laughs> I'm not saying that, you know, and I would eat so much and get so full that the whole thought of alcohol was just a turnoff. And what's, and so that's when I really started going, oh shit, I get it. And so I kind of went one thing at a time. I mean, alcohol was the biggest one. I didn't need to solve my alcoholism. I just needed to not drink. And that was one of the things I would do. I'm not endorsing this. This is just my path, but I was, I used to smoke and drink and, you know, people are like, well, you quit drinking. How about cigarettes? I'm like, not yet. You know, it's kind of like I wasn't going to start running sprints when I barely just figured out how to walk. Right. <laughs> you know, like everybody gives you like really good advice. But, uh, and I took some of it and then it would explode in my face and then Pat would come back and go, you loser. Because I never think, oh, that was the wrong advice or I should have never done that. I always think I'm a loser. You know, there's people in my lizard brain always is operates like everything is a saber toothed tiger that's trying to destroy me. So like you could say, hey, John got a promotion at work. And I don't say, hey, congratulations, John. I think, see, Andrew, you're a fucking loser. You're a dumbass. You'll never get a promotion. That's my first line of thinking every time for everything. You can beat me to the red light and you don't even know we're in a race. And I think you're a better human being than me. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, if you drive a Beamer or an Audi, clearly you're a better human than I am in my Ford. 
But what ended up <laughs> happening is I would realize that thinking and then I'd force myself to drive shitty cars. No, no kidding. I basically got into a place where I was very comfortable in my discomfort. Mm. And that allowed me to, the shit that was just kind of popping up, it would just allow me to turn around and look at it. And I wasn't judging it. It wasn't right or wrong. It, I didn't want to make it a ethical thing. I mean, not, I didn't arrive here. There was a lot of trial and error to get here. That's not how I started. But then I started thinking, does it work or does it not work? So going to Taco Bell, and I'm a pretty healthy guy, and smoking cigarettes is not congruent with a guy that's getting up early in the morning to go do deadlifts and squats and run sprints. But it served the purpose of not allowing me to get drunk. And that went on for, I don't know, maybe six months, quite honestly. <laughs> and I did put on weight, but I was okay with the weight. I figured I'll just lose the fucking fat after I get over the whole drinking thing. So it was like one thing at a time, but I'm the kind of guy that wants everything right now, which I'm sure I suspect most of us are, you know, like it's Monday or Tuesday and I'm like, I got to lose 50 pounds and make a million dollars by Friday at 10 because I don't want to work Friday afternoon. <laughs> and then I, th then it doesn't happen. And then I'm surprised. I'm surprised it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, it's so fucking weird the way I think in that way. You know, I could talk to you about weight loss while eating bologna mayonnaise sandwiches and think it's totally okay. <laughs> you, know, like, you have lung cancer. Well, I don't know. Let's go smoke cigarettes. <laughs> so it's like, it's very backwards. And I know it is for some people. And, you know, just in the program, everybody I sponsor came up to me because, dude, you have such a weird way of looking at it. I need that perspective. Right. Because we get trapped on if you do A, then B happens. And I've, I've, I did the book, I read the book, but I can't quote you pages from the books. I know when the shit hits the fan, I need to go to page 64. I know when I'm in fear, I need to go do a fear inventory. I know that when I'm very anxious, my mind is elsewhere and I need to recenter myself through meditation. But my stuff is all very diagnostic now. And so if, if it was very structured, I never thrived in it. Um, Struct I have such issues with authority that even the structure sabotages me. Mm. So I have to find a way to like mentally masturbate myself into <laughs> doing shit I don't want to do by thinking it is what I want to do. It's very schizophrenic, hence Patton and everybody and <laughs> Ashley, and those are just two. And the anonymous guy with the that works for NASA. <laughs> you know, you strike me <clears throat> as um highly intelligent. Okay. And I mean that, I mean, it's a compliment, but I'm Thank wondering you. how that affected your ability to get sober. Because you know how you hear sometimes intelligence can be an impediment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember my one of my first sponsors going like, this program is very hard for intelligent people. And uh, it, the statement, you know, I thought he was just making a statement. But then I realized it wasn't necessarily a compliment. You know, he was passive aggressively doing like, you're an intelligent guy. But actually, he said smart. He goes, this, pro this program is very hard on smart people. And I was like, yeah, I'm smart. And then it just kind of started connecting the dots. And so, yeah, the, the overthinking, um, you know, there's that joke, like never fuck with an overthinker or never lie to an overthinker because I'm always looking for holes in the story. And I'm cynical. And I always think everybody's trying to fuck me. You know, so like I have this comment. So like you can come up to me with here is 
you know, as they did with the big book. Here's the solution to live the life you want to live. And I was like, yeah, well, how are you making money? <laughs> What's in it for you? <laughs> right. What's your stick? I mean, right. a man hugged me and I'm like, maybe he's gay. Right. <laughs> you know, I am a handsome and smart guy. <laughs> like my imagination goes places. I don't know. Sometimes somewhere, somehow I read maybe in Vogue or something, you know, like a woman's sign of finding you attractive is playing with her hair. I could be next to a woman who has dandruff and I'm going, she wants me. She's scratching <laughs> away and I'm thinking she wants me. <laughs> so, but so in the very, yes, I am intelligent, but it's, I didn't. I never thought of myself that way. I was always just trying to beat this, beat myself, beat the system against myself. So I was never this reflective. But so once the drinking goes away, my thinking stays. And so how come here I am feeling inferior to somebody else? And then, then I would just sit there in that discomfort and go, "What are the thoughts that came to me when I did that?" So in the beginning, it did work against me quite a bit, you know, and then. Uh, sometimes as I'm healing, it, it, it works against me. What do you mean as you're healing? Uh, I still I still have to do step one maybe once a week, you know, where I'm powerless over something. Or I don't get a craving, but I'll definitely have that thinking of inferiority. So my isms are still pretty alive. I mean, if I get hungry, tired, you know, lonely. So there are some times when I'm not in the now. You know, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm time traveling to the future, I'm pretty anxious. If I'm time traveling to the past, I get pretty depressed, you know, all the things I could have done differently. And so these are just little things that I have to heal. So sometimes, so here's an example. I, we, I was moving some stuff in my office and I ran into my old military records on a scale of one to five, you know, five being excellent. I consistently scored a two. And I just remember looking at those records with disappointment and pain for that past me who was afraid to give anything an effort. And then those feelings kind of came up again and I was sad. Mm. And so I was like, well, look, that was you. You clearly had to go through that in order to get to where you are right now. And if you could travel back in time, would you go fix Andrew or would you go back with like lottery ticket numbers for a mega win? And then maybe, you know, like if I'm going back in time, I'm not fixing that shit. I'm going back and I'm like mowing lawns like a motherfucker investing in Facebook. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but, you know, as intelligent as I like to think I am, labor is about the only thing I really got going for me. But I would, that's the healing. And sometimes it just comes up. You know, I mean, it just on my way here, I get into an argument with my wife and I'm in the shower and I'm thinking, instead of listening, I opted to be clever. And by the time the shower, she's still pissed. And I'm just like, okay, why was that? Well, she was making me feel like I was a bad dad because we were talking about one of the kids and what she thought I needed to do. And the point is, I didn't go get drunk. I didn't scream and yell at anybody. I didn't slam any doors. So I'm still healing. Mm -hmm. I'm always healing. And that's when I go like, the fact that I'm always seeking or that I think it should be comfortable is really the biggest lie. You know, I'm the kind of guy that if Jenny Craig offered me an opportunity, I'd be like, I'd be right. First, let me lose 10 pounds and then I'll come over. <laughs> like, what the fuck? You know, like it's, I remember hearing it. Like, you know, when I first came to AA, it was like, I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. I behave like a tourist, right? 
I sat by the door or by the coffee machine. I didn't hang around too much past the prayer. I'll give it a try. And if I think it works, then I'll fully commit. Well, that was in and out for 10 years. And that was the biggest lie was me thinking that I could take it for a test drive. Mm. And then here's another ism was doing anything fully extreme for me, fully committing to, to it, burning the bridges. It's actually easier on the psyche. And that was my burn the boat moment. Mm. So I've switched that to come in, take it 100% fucking seriously like it needs to be, and it'll work out. But I was thinking if it kind of works out, then I'll commit. And it's like I can't half-ass commit. And it's and, and that's where, as an alcoholic, I didn't half-ass commit to a 12-pack. I killed that bitch. <laughs> so... The tools or some of the, my behaviors as a drunk are actually the same behaviors I'm still using as a sober person that are helping me stay sober. So, you know, I always thought drinking was a very selfish activity. Oh, not me. I was told it was very selfish by everybody who wanted me to stop drinking. So we thought two things. A, they were wrong. <laughs> and B, what the fuck do they know? <laughs> but that level of selfishness is what has kept me sober. It was to be able to make four meetings in a week or two or three or whatever I could make. It was my selfishness to get up and not want to, or not want to, but if I get up, I get up earlier so that I can meditate and journal before my kids get up. Right. Because if I don't do that, I'm yelling at kids. If not physically, I'm definitely doing it inside my head. Mm. Like Patton is, you know, driving that bus. And so Patton's not a fucking nice fucker for me. I'm sure some people admire the shit out of him, but the way I made him up in my mind, my imaginary friend, I like Ashley more than Patton. <laughs> anyway, so that level of intensity of just going all in and selfish while I was drinking is the same thing. And here's the crazy thing. I remember hearing, like, if you only give sobriety half the effort you did to drinking, you'll be okay. And I was like, well, I love to half-ass shit anyway. <laughs> and it was true. Yeah, I just made three meetings. And it was very, very selfish to do Friday nights when I should have, when I thought I should have been home. But then I also have to think about it. If I would have been home drinking, I would have not been present. I would have been escaping. And if I'm at a meeting on a Friday night, I'm very present, even though I'm not around my family. But when I come back, they get all of me. And so that's just one of the many things that I did as a drunk that I still do as a sober person. I just, it's a flip side of the same coin. You know, selfishness. Um, Let me take a little break here. We will be continuing our conversation with Andrew A. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. And there you'll find over 100 other episodes, which you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, which, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization. Through our own contributions, we are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Andrew A. So I want to ask you a couple of, so first of all, I think I want to go back in time a little bit here because I got a lot of comments on this when you actually did episode 12, mm -hmm. okay? both uh, people in person to me and people that uh, uh, wrote in to the program. 
And you talked about some pretty, even though we joked around a lot. Yeah. You talked about one uh, very serious matter, Mm -hmm. which was some sexual abuse that you experienced when you were a child and how that affected you and growing up. And can you, you say what you want to say about that, right? It's a tender subject, if you will. Uh, I don't want to take it lightly, obviously, but just talk about how that experience kind of affected you, your sobriety, and maybe even today. I, it was the experience that got me drunk. You know, I just didn't know I was holding on to the experience. So a lot of the persona of who I am, you know, with the tattoos and the fighting and the size I've put on through weightlifting and eating, you know, Ashley has been part of making me a big boy. <laughs> well, remember, oh, in fact, you were coming up here. My daughter saw you uh-huh. and she saw you been walking up to the door. She said, he looks like a nice guy. I said, he is a nice guy, but I can guarantee you, I would not, unless he was on my side, I would not want to cross his path while I was drinking <laughs> yeah. for sure. You know, martial arts as well. Do you yeah. Know? Yeah, I do. I, I grew up boxing and then I grew up doing a lot of uh, uh, well, Krav Maga is really where I ended, but a lot of karate, taekwondos, very little jujitsu. I'm not a yeah. If we go to the ground, I'm biting and pulling hair, and you know, pushing eye sockets in and punching the crotch. <laughs> Anything that goes to the ground, I'm pretty much inefficient at. At that point, I might just start screaming and scratching your eyes out. <laughs> but standing up, I think I look pretty good. <laughs> You're uh, you're imposing. I mean, in in a, in, a, in a good way, but you but you have a kind of a, a baby face at the same yeah, time. You have this other, baby face, and well, then, yeah, that's. It. I always said, you know, I'm just a scared little boy, and I wrapped up a big old body around it, <laughs> and then we tatted it up. <laughs> they, they uh, you know, the uh, I guess I was six years old, and I was getting abused by a kid that was like 13 or 14, and uh, it was just we would get let off the bus and he would just put his hand on my back of my neck and just escort me to, you know, a private place somewhere in the parking, you know, parking garage. And I grew up in the city or, you know, he would just attack me in the elevators. And, uh, that part, yeah, it's confusing already, period. Right. And you're a little kid and, but, and I've done a lot of work on this. So, the fact that it leaves my lips this easily is probably more reflective of the fact that I have just accepted it. You know, kind of like our step one, I'm powerless over what happened to me. I was six years old, but up until the age of like 40, what that six-year-old was saying about me, I believed. You're a homosexual. You let this happen to you. You're to blame. And that was bad enough as it was. But the one that I always, there were two things about that situation that I kept really locked down tight. The abuse was escalating to was getting more physical, you know, a lot of punching and that kind of thing. And uh, there were a couple of times where I willingly pulled down my own pants. And that scene would replay in my head over and over again, going, you fucking faggot, you wanted this. And the second one was my mom heard about it. And she embarrassingly, like, pulled me into the house, pulled down my pants, checked my rear, and then proceeded to fucking spank the shit out of me for letting it happen. So the way my therapist said it, he goes, the person I was supposed to be protecting you also became, you got re-victimized 
by the person that was supposed to that you're supposed to trust. And it would have been and it was easy to transfer my anger back and forth between my fucking bitch of a mom and the fucking asshole this kid was. But through AA, through everything, you just kind of start processing it and just putting it where it is. But I remember my counselor, when this hit, we were talking about something. I can't remember what exactly she said. I flinched and she said, what happened? Where did you just go? And uh, I knew where I had gone, but I wasn't willing to put it on the table. And she pressed on, where did you go? You went somewhere. You just checked out. And I told her, but not to the degree like I'm telling you. It was just very, I was like, well, I, was, I, I might have been sexually abused as a kid, but it wasn't anything major. I was still trying to protect whatever I was trying to protect. I, I just didn't know. It was, it was just a very serious secret. And we worked through it, and we worked through it for a long time. Um, the way this came about was my son said something to me, and for whatever reason, I was able to, he had a strong opinion about somebody. And I just thought, this little shit six-year-old, what does he know? And I don't know, it was a God thing. Because I still remember I was standing in the kitchen and thinking, but the six-year-old in my head is saying those things, and I'm believing them. If my son says you were a faggot or you, whatever, I'd be like, what the fuck, kid? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? But the six-year-old Andrew was saying that, and I was taking it. Truth. I forget. They had a name for it, like you, you transfer, transferation or something. I didn't really care too much for the medical component of it as much as I was like, yes, that's what it was. It was him being a child that helped me realize that I was, as an adult, living with the child opinion of myself. And it wasn't a good opinion. It, it, that kid was not equipped to have an opinion. And so as we're progressing through the therapy, two pivotal moments was when I finally disclosed that I pulled down my pants and this, and she goes, that was God protecting you. And I fucking lost it because you kind of go, what kind of a fucking God does that to its child? And she explained to me that, and they were like, the beatings were getting so much worse. They were going to escalate even more. And he actually helped you. Cause it stopped soon after that for, I don't know why, maybe it was, maybe it was no longer fun to have a willing participant. I've never been an abuser. So I don't know what the fuck was going on through that kid's head. But the second thing that happened from that was my relationship with God got stronger and so going back to the point of transference, I thought, if I'm his son, how he loves me. And so I was able to think, how, would I, how do I love my son? And if my son was in a similar situation being abused, and it was either survive the abuse or let the beatings continue to where you could possibly get hurt, my advice to him would be like, just go along with it and then we'll salvage you. And that was the first time where I understood that kind of love where I know how God loves me. I, he lets, he will never take away my integrity for me to burn my hand doing something wrong, even when I know it's wrong. He will never take away my integrity for me to grow from my mistakes. I mean, I'm in sales and we don't, we do a lot of trainings on how to, 
you know, get better. There are no trainings on how to spend commission checks. <laughs> so I never learned. I have learned, but you know, I, I, there's not a lot of lessons that I play when shit went right. You know, there's either winning or there's learning. And that was a big learning. What I thought was a failure, what I thought was part of my identity, what I thought determined my future as less than was actually what fucking built me. And what do you mean built you? Overcoming my opinions of myself as an adult that I had lived with for so long and just accepting them as a observer of them, not as a willing participant. It allowed me to just accept things, accept life on life's terms. I was accepting other components of life. You know, I was sober already, I think 10 years at this point, but not everything in my wheel of life was perfect. I mean, sometimes my marriage is great, but my business sucks. And physically, I'm doing fantastic. And spiritually, I'm doing fantastic. My sobriety is fantastic. But there's other times where my marriage sucks, my business sucks, but my spirituality is doing fantastic. And so I w- this one thing was just, I got to take it out of my um, DNA or who I thought I was and use it to become who I think I am. You know, it, it took me to a, it's such a low place that takes you to a higher place. I mean, I would never in any, in a thousand years compare myself to this, but, it, it, but when these guys talk about stuff like this, it really it makes sense to me when somebody got injured and they can no longer walk or they're in a wheelchair and they're thankful because now they view life so much differently like the colors are more alive or, you know, their emotions and the grateful alcoholic, we all have them in our meetings. You know, if it wasn't for my alcoholism, I would not be here. I'm not sitting here because I'm a fucking drunk. I'm sitting here because I've been able to process the fact I'm a fucking drunk and I didn't jump off a bridge off it yet. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. It's given me like a level of peace to do Mondays and Mondays, Tuesdays and Tuesdays, Wednesdays on Wednesdays. And that for so many years, um, I remember my psychiatrist explaining my anger, you know, how I would just explode. And I'm not a pleasant fucking guy to be around when I'm pissed. Like I'm not beyond taking hostages and where he would, where, um, he would say, if you feel that you're being taken advantage of, it becomes a life and death situation for you. So in a sense, I become powerless over my abuse of somebody if I think they're taking advantage of me. That's where that saber-toothed tiger comes That's out. the saber-toothed tiger. And that's because I still remember as a small child, that's where my mom beat me up, that I was like, this will not happen ever again. I started fighting that guy a little bit back more. I still got my ass kicked, but I was no longer fun, I guess, to pick at. And then that set me off through a different path where I was always very abundantly cautious of people that try to get close to me. And then it was easier to just attack them versus waiting for them to attack me. And I used to shotgun for everything. So even if there was no intention of them attacking me, it didn't matter. I had to be the alpha. I had to be in control. And it just, and if you were stronger, smarter, wealthier than me, then I had to neurolinguistically beat you. I had to be funnier. I had to be more demeaning. I had to, so I, I went into this 
world where I was always telling myself stories that made me better than somebody else. Now, the more I read, the more I got educated, the more meetings I went to AA, then I realized everybody's doing this. Everybody's scared as fuck. <laughs> everybody's making it up as they go along. The older I get, the more I realize nobody really fucking knows what they're doing, man. We're just winging it. I mean, my first kid is like still pissed off I spanked her and, and is angry at her 13-year-old sister who goes, well, he learned a lesson on your ass. You know, <laughs> like, like, We didn't change her attitude. She's still a little dick. Whether we hit her or not, this is what we got. And so... Then I was able to just kind of that that one among many, you know, just another clown in the clown car. So I I stopped trying to identify who I was by putting others down. And I started, I just kind of wanted to surrender. And that was the paradox of it. This is another ism that's backwards. Is the minute I could tell that story, like I say it to you, is the minute it lost its grip on me. Similarly to when I accepted I was powerless alcohol, alcohol lost a script in me. I went from victim and trying to hide something to willing participant and saying, I choose to. I didn't choose to get fucking raped, but I do choose to fucking live with it and talk about it openly because it doesn't define me. And I do choose to understand that you or any listener here or anybody I told the story to could have whatever opinion they want of me. That's their business. This is like this is one of the best examples. Now, I've been married for a very long time, like high school sweetheart, and uh, we're going on almost thirty years married. Uh, she's making coffee. I'm getting upset about how she's making coffee. I'm starting to have a reaction as to how you know shit is not going along the lines of the ruler Andrew. And I'm getting tense, and she she looks at me, and she goes, calm down, you're not getting raped. <laughs> I think the minute it left her lips, she was horrified she went there, and I started laughing. And I knew I had healed when I laughed, but it was the best pattern interrupt, you know? Like, I realized I was things weren't going my way. I was I felt I was being taken advantage of. I don't know what fantasy goes on in my head. I just it's almost like pieces start falling together. I mean, my neurons have years of wiring and firing a pattern. And that's where that pattern was going. And sometimes you don't realize it till it's late. And so becoming this third person that's observing it, you know, I mean, it's like um I think we're just at an age where we just don't give a shit anymore. Like, you know, there's an anatomy to a husband and a wife fighting. And, you know, well, she's going to say this, and especially if you've been around each other, and then I'm going to say this, and then she'll probably bring up my grandparents, and then I'm going to fucking bring up her fucking grandparents, and then she's going to say how I fucked up the boy, and then I'm going to bring up how she wrecked that car, and, you know, like, there's a, there's a dance, you know, there's a, there's, there's a pattern, and I remember we got into a fight once, and she, and it, she pretty much just went for the juggler, you know, like, you don't make enough money to support your family, and you have a small dick. <laughs> I started laughing, go like, there was no fight foreplay, babe. You can't just go there. <laughs> I was like, we're supposed to be fighting at 20%. What is this bullshit? You know, she was like that. But anyway, we laugh. I laugh at this shit now. Like, I have, for whatever reason, through my alcoholism, my abuse, and everything I've been training myself to do, I perform so much better under pressure now than I ever did before. Before I would kick it off me like you would like you see somebody trying to kick the covers off them. I wanted nothing that cost me stress. And the minute I dealt with what I thought was a stress I was trying to hide was the minute I was okay with the stress. And I mean these fights happen and 
you just laugh and they don't, they don't determine who I am as a human being. They just determine what happened in that thin slice of time where that happened. And I never know what the hell is going on with her or somebody else. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not conscious of it, but I'm saying that because of my AAism, I don't know what's bothering her. And I can, it's easier for me to attack you from my perspective, but I don't want to do that anymore. I used to be the kind of guy that if you cut me off, I was like, maybe you got to take a piss. I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> you know, but there's episodes where you cut me off and I'm like, okay, we're going NASCAR right now. <laughs> I'm going to be drafting off your ass. Because <laughs> don't you know who you just disrespected? So I, it, it's, and then sometimes that last, I, they, it rarely ever goes past a minute, honestly, because there's now this other character in my head that looks like the dude, you know, that's Jesus. And he's like, he doesn't say anything. He just kind of manages me through the looks, like eyebrow movements, like, dude. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> I communicate with him the least. He's probably the, my favorite. He's the, the no plan is the plan. You know, as much as I wanted to prepare for this, I spent my drive here praying. And I love driving. I love my time alone. I am the least lonely when I'm isolated. And I was like, I'll just take city streets up here. And I could have. I enjoy that. I enjoy getting lost in neighborhoods, whatever. But AA, the big book, my thinking is like Google Maps. I don't need the stress of showing up here late. So I had to take directions. And I let the fucking dude put me on toll roads and do whatever he's got to do to get me here on time. And so the, the objective was to get here level-headed, not to come tearing through your front door pissed off because I t- decided to take city streets and I'm driving with the map on my lap, and do I turn right, do I turn left? I mean, it's not like I'm Columbus. The shit says north, but I have no fucking idea what that means. <laughs> oh Columbus. <laughs> you know, like, when I navigate this shit. So it's just, you surrender into the process. You surrender into the process, and that's, a, and that's the fastest way I stay stronger. I mean, I remember saying says not everybody who surrenders wins. And going back to my joke on about fighting on the ground, I have had guys... 30, 40 pounds lighter than me, dry humping the shit out of me on the mat. My strength, my brawn, my ability to fight means nothing when you're dealing with somebody that's behaving like a wet blanket on top of you and they're slowly setting up their next move. And that is one of the best lessons I ever learned. Just like you can't force it. You have to flow into it. And when I force things, I'm always thinking about what the end result would look like. So being a sober member of AA would suck if I started projecting forward and going, how am I going to be around alcohol when my daughter gets married? If I know I'm going to die, do I go get drunk? I've always enjoyed getting drunk. I love the way it used to make me feel. I haven't forgotten that feeling. Would I, you know, and Wayne Dyer always said it, like the point of dancing is not where you end up on the dance floor. It's to enjoy dancing. Right. And so I'm always going, when I'm forcing it, I'm very uncomfortable in my own skin. I'm looking for whatever the outcome could be. But when I go into flow, you know, where I just go, okay, God, you're driving this fucking thing. Then everything works out. I get to be right here, real present. Sometimes, you know, you do Mondays and Mondays, Tuesdays and Tuesdays. Sometimes you do 1201 at 1201 and we'll deal with 1202 when 1202 shows up. And so it's for a guy that looks and projects himself as everything has to be manageable. I am one of the most unmanaged individuals out there. My buddy used to say it. He goes, to the naked eye, you look like a shit show. <laughs> he said, but I, he's been working with me for so long. He goes, you follow pa- patterns, you know, which is another weird thing for me that, and this, I stole this from 
one of the guys I used to, I still listen to, but is that Navy SEAL and goes, discipline is what creates freedom. And I always thought I was free getting drunk at two in the afternoon on a Tuesday, but I was, I was, I had so much freedom. I was, I was restricted. Mm. You know, I forget how I put it, but it was one of these, like, um, I felt trapped because I felt like I didn't have any choice. Come two, three o'clock, I was going to get drunk. Come two, you know, come five o'clock, I was going to be flossing and using all sorts of minty shit because my wife was about to roll through the house. <laughs> and I was trying to walk like, I, I actually, I still remember in our first house, there was a hallway and she's like, are we going to hang some pictures here? And I was like, no, I don't think we should. But it was at shoulder level. <laughs> I would actually lean against that hallway and walk. And I'm like, I don't need, I don't need to knock over pictures too while I'm at it. And, um, but when I got into a pattern of making my three, four meetings a day, and I found the ones that worked for me, and I stuck with them, uh, when I got into the pattern that when I wake up, I usually go right into a meditation, I'll go into some journaling, I have to work out before 10. All that discipline is what buys me the freedom. It is so paradoxical. And, you know, it's like surrendering to get your power and all that other stuff. And so half the time I'm thinking everything I've been taught is wrong. I feel like George Constanza, an opposite day. I told my boss to fuck off and he gave me a race. Right. You know, like it's, just, it's that weird. And sometimes being the observer, you're sitting back and like, I can't believe that worked. You know, I always made a job offer and I almost looked over my shoulder like, now you know who I am, right? Like I barely ever want to wear pants and socks. <laughs> Why are you offering me a position here? Oh, we would like for you to, and that's leadership? Holy shit, what did I do that made you think I was a leader? But it's, and that's what ends up happening to me is just that I behave genuinely who I am, which is, it's not as hard as I'd like to think it is. Once I was able to detach, once I was able to just my self-concept is like, you are who you are, how you are, and what John thinks of me is none of my business. I could think and I can write down everything I want to say, but every conversation of mine starts with, quietly, God speak through me. Mm-hmm. Now, God has got a fantastic sense of humor and a dirty fucking mouth, by the way. (laughs) I hear. (laughs) By the way, I do want you to know, I am uh, forced by the uh, podcast gods to mark particular episodes explicit if there is particular language. I think I've done one or two other episodes that I have, and you're one of them explicit. Explicit, yeah. <laughs> this Look, is going to be a third one. <laughs> I, used to, I used to talk nationally, and uh, I remember being in Cleveland, and when everybody was coming in and I would do sales training, they had an, what looked like a non-disclosure, like an NDA, but it was really a, you sign this, Andrew talks off color. If you're going to be offended, don't sign this, just leave the room. But if you sign this... And Andrew starts doing Andrew, and you get upset, we're going to show you what you signed. <laughs> and, and that worked out beautifully. Because I would always tell people, I was like, I mean, I had a talk the other day, and I said shit three times, and I almost like high-five myself where I broke my elbow. I was like, that's pretty damn good, dude. And then still somebody was like, I didn't appreciate you saying shit. And I was like, well, you're not going to appreciate what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> it ends with off or you, your choice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... One last thing, I do want you to, uh, once in a meeting, I heard you share, and somebody, well, somebody in the room shared about a uh, a functioning alcoholic, and then you brought up that 
I think it's a Robin Williams quote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a functional alcoholic is like a paraplegic stripper. You can do it. You're just not that good at it. <laughs> <laughs> a functioning alcoholic is like a paraplegic stripper. You can do it. You're just not that good at it. Or you're not as good as the other girls, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I thought, you know, function alcoholic, I still kept both of my restaurants and, you know, my four-door sedan and my junior executive haircut, you know. We ate three meals a day, nobody starved, but I was not functional at all. <laughs> at all. Oh, Andrew, I always enjoy spending time with you. Um, <laughs> Oh, you know, I never know exactly know what to say at the end when I'm talking to Andrew. <laughs> this is, I wouldn't even know what was going to come out of my lips, man. Right, right. It's I'm like, just channeling this shit. I know I had a few bullet points of some things I wanted to talk to you about, but I don't even think we got to them, and you never know exactly where this is going to go, but that's the... Uh, I, I love the spontaneity behind it. I mean, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> All right, here's page 164 from the big book of Alcoholics mm -hmm. Anonymous. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, such as me and Andrew, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Andrew, once again, thank you so much for coming over today to record your story. No, my pleasure, man. Back on Dios, motherfuckers. Yeah, there you go. Say, say, uh, <laughs> say whatever. Say, say whatever you want to say. say Back on Dios, motherfuckers. Yeah, I guess you did it. <laughs> so I, I understand the motherfuckers, but what is the is the rest go of it? Go with God. Go with go. Oh, yeah, Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here's here's the whole episode in three words. Yield, motherfucker. Yield. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I love it. I may have to put some of that in the title of this episode. We'll talk about this afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Adios, everybody. Baya con Dios, everybody. Oh, everybody. Is that to Todos? Todos? Am, am I correct on that? Or is that Todos? Baya bio, con Dios. But you get the idea. Baya con Dios, everybody. Todos. I sure hope you enjoyed that. I Really did enjoy spending time with Andrew. If you want to get a message to Andrew, or for that fact, any of the other speakers, send me an email to john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com, and I will be sure to pass along the information. If you are not following me, actually us, I should say, I explained all that on last week's episode. If you're not following us on Instagram, I'm at at Soberspeak, all one word. We would love to have you follow us there. Uh, if you are not in the Super Secret Facebook group and you would like to be part of that organization, please send me your email, John, J -O send me your email to John, J-O-H-N, at Soberspeak.com and give me your email that is associated with your Facebook account and we will send you an invite and get you into the group. All right, now on to a little bit of listener feedback, sober feedback. 
mm, I'm still playing around with that one. I want to call that long term. You think I would settle on something? And for those of you who are new to this, uh, just forget what I said. I've been struggling with what to call that for a long time. Anyway, Janet writes in, <clears throat> excuse me. She uh, did not clear her throat before she started writing. That was just me. And Jenna says, I live in Wichita, Kansas, and I have been sober since November 4th of 2000. I love, in all capital words, recovery. The 12 steps in the traditions have taught me how to live life, accept what I cannot change, and change what I can. I was told years ago that I would come that I would come off that new recovery high, but I never have. Well, good for you. Each day is a gift, and that's why we call it the quote present unquote. Oh, I have been through loss and gains, which I used to drink over, but life is just like that. Life. I found Sober Speak on Podbean when I was searching for recovery podcasts. The podcast is great. I have shared it with my son, who is 60 days sober. Praise God. Yeah, praise God for that. That is great. And my ex-daughter-in-law, she's two years sober now, and whoever else that needs the meeting between the meetings, don't we all? (laughs) Brenda J is my all-time favorite. Would love her to come to Wichita for a roundup and speak sometime. She is so real. I hope all is well in Texas. I might try to make it to one of your Sober Speak conferences. I have family in Fort Worth. Blessing to you and to yours, Janet. That's great, Janet, and I would absolutely love to see you down here. Um, You know, I realize that uh, uh, not everybody can make it to Texas for one of the Sober Speak Live events, but I do, I I was just confirming today, we are going to have another Sober Speak Live event. Uh, I think I'll be able to release all the details of that on the next podcast here, on the next episode, I should say. Kendra writes in and she says, hello, John. Kathy Joe mentioned Sober Speak to me. And Kathy Joe is a friend of the a podcast, a listener, and she communicates with us on a consistent basis. And I show appreciate you, Kathy Joe. Anyway, she said, Kathy Joe shared a link to one of the podcasts. And that's where I heard your email to reach out about getting added to the Facebook group. I've been sober for 31 plus year, and I'm now abstinent in Overeaters Anonymous for four Four and a half years, which is UFF DA amazing freedom. Step work has been much deeper now than the sh- that the sugar fog has cleared. Whew, she says. Blessings. Life is too short for drama and petty things. Laugh insanely, love truly, dance lots, and forgive quickly. Peace and hugs. Kendra, XOXOXO. Well, peace and hugs and XOs right back out to you. You know, I'm sure other people understood this, but I'm not sure what the uh, UFF-DA stands for. It's probably text language or something like that. I'm just, you know, I'm just not too cool sometimes. Anyway, Brian writes in and he says, hi, John, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm from Boston is what he says. And he says, and I'm just coming back from a year long relapse that was very hard, both mentally and financially. 
What I'm working on to do differently this time is to reach out to somebody and not let my ego get in the way. I've been constantly listening to Sober Speak while driving, exercising, and before I actually go to an actual meeting. These have been, these episodes have been very therapeutic and have helped me ground myself during hectic days. In one of those podcasts, somebody said, I tried to be a part-time alcoholic and it didn't work. Man, I can relate to that. I could have related, I couldn't have related anymore. Thank you so much for what you do, my friend. Best wishes, Brian T. Well, Mr. Brian T from Boston, that it was a wicked good email that you sent there. <laughs> wicked. That's wicked. Anyway, um, and I so appreciate you writing in and I'm so glad you're on the right track. And I'm so glad that this little puny podcast of mine can help to be a part of your recovery journey. I sure do appreciate it. Jen writes in and Jen says, good morning and happy Tuesday. Well, good morning to you. It's not really morning for me while I'm writing this, but I get the idea. When you wrote in, it was morning and it was a Tuesday. She says, I have been listening to your podcast for the past few weeks and love it in all capital letters of four five exclamation points. I have told several friends in recovery and not in recovery about it. I enjoy so much the speakers and the laughter. Laughter has been such a big part of my recovery. I can relate to you there, Ms. Jim. I want to join the super secret Facebook group, but the email associated with my Facebook group is not the one I use. Can you send me an invite to this email account? Thank you for all what you are doing. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine exclamation points. That is, that is such an emphatic thank you for what you're doing. And, and, and that goes right back out to you for listening, Miss Jen. Anyway, she says, I thoroughly enjoy the podcast and I listen every day, Jen. Well, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, I don't know why it is, but you have to have the email associated with your Facebook account in order to make these things work. But such is life. We will get somehow, some way, we'll get you into that uh, uh, super secret Facebook group. You know, I know that this happens sometimes. If you go out and you like the public page, it gives me an, an option to invite people who have. Uh, um, join the, who have liked the public page. So the sober speak page that is, so that may work. Anyway, we'll try it. We'll get you in there. Maureen writes in, she says, hi, John, I'm writing to let you know I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Well, this is our podcast, but I get it, Maureen. I'm from a little town, Rockaway, New Jersey. Rockaway, baby, on the treetop, Rockaway, New Jersey, in the cradle will drop. I'm so sorry. But anyway, she says, I am 133 days sober and I found the podcast while I was at home recovering from knee surgery, which is going great and I'm back to work. Your podcast has saved me during some scary times. Oh, I especially love Brenda J. She is so inspiring and her message truly spoke to me. I hear that a lot, as did many others on your show. I'd love to be added to your super secret Facebook group. And as you know, we sent you out an email, Miss Maureen. I hope one day to make it to a Sober Speak live event. And we hope that you can make it as well, Miss Maureen. By the grace of God, that will be possible. Thank you for your service. 
Keep it going. You are a gift to so many folks. Big heart, big heart, and a what? Oh, praying hands. Oh, and then sent from my iPhone. I could probably leave out the sent from my iPhone part, but you know, I'm just weird like that. What can I say? All right. Micah writes in and he says, Hello, John. 100 days sober today. Quite a milestone, Mr. Micah. Anyway, it says, for several years, I have watched my life descend into madness, but couldn't help, but couldn't get hope for career reasons. I finally admitted in my life and my family, I finally admitted that my life and my family were more important than any career. Good for you, Micah. And my wife nudged me into an outpatient program. Good for you, Miss Wife. They forced us to attend AA meetings in the evenings. What nerve. <laughs> I quickly realized that AA was not the stereotypical cult I had always had the impression of. I did 100 meetings in 90 days and I'm still going. During the early days of confusion while 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 in outpatient, I was scared to death of being alone during the afternoons while my wife was at work. Googling for online meetings or podcasts, I quickly found SoberSpeak on Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called now. No, you got it right. It used to be called uh, iTunes. Now it's Apple Podcasts. Anyway, your podcast kept me kept me company on those long, long drives to and from the treatment center each day and gave me my meeting between meetings to safely while away my time uh, waiting for her to get off work. Very nice. You know, I can tell there's all sorts of resources out there, right? Mine is one, but I'm off script now, by the way. This is, I'm not reading for Mike anymore. I can tell when people, when they're proactively looking for something to help them in those times and needs, that's when I go, those folks have a real good shot of making it. When they don't just sit back and wait for something to come to them, but they're proactively looking for it. And I love that, Michael, Micah. Anyway, he says... <clears throat> I just listened to Brenda J last night in the car. Wow. Most powerful yet. That must be the, uh, <clears throat> the Sober Speak Live event. Cause then he says, the two of you had great chemistry and she was a riot. I only cl- cried once around 3820. I'll have to go back and see what was at 3820. And he says, I know a speaker has impressed me when my initial reaction is thinking about how awesome it would be to spend an evening with him or her. Thanks for another great podcast. If you ever want to take Sober Speak Live on the road, Atlanta is a great destination with 2,500 meetings daily in our metro region. Cheers. Micah, which rhymes with, I like my Micah. (laughs) What? Oh, a P.S. While I am selfishly following the 12 steps for me, my boy is my reason for living. Here's Yoshi. Oh, and he gives me a wonderful picture of Mr. Yoshi. What a cute, cute little boy. And uh, okay, and go back to that thing about the uh, oh, I, oh, Mr. Yoshi, I could stare at you all day long. What a cute kid. And going back to that piece about taking uh, uh, taking Sober Speak Live on the road to Atlanta. You know, here's the deal, folks. I would love to take it on the road anywhere, but really what it comes down to is kind of a matter of uh, 
logistics and expenses. The only reason I do it here locally is because, you know, I, basically I can go across the street and do it. And uh, so anyway, but I appreciate the uh, sentiment. Who knows? Someday maybe we'll get to take a little soap speak live on the road for you people out there. And I would love to do that. And then you got to have a speaker, right? A lot of the speakers that I know are local, but uh, we can always get good speakers. Anyway, Johnny writes in on the IG. When I say on the IG, I mean on the Instagram for you non-cool people who may not know what that is. And he says, hey, John M., I'm listening you to, listening to you today while I work. Going strong, staying connected to the source, exclamation point. And the source, I'm sure what he's talking about, is the God of his understanding. All the best to you and yours, Johnny in Chicago, exclamation point. And then he gives me a big picture with his big thumbs up. And I can see his little earbuds hanging around his ears. That must be how he's listening. And thank you so much for sending that in, Johnny. Andrew writes in on the IG as well, and he says, thank you for the cast, for you uncool folks. That's podcast. He says, I can't put into words how it helps, and yet I'm sure you understand. Thank you, Andrew. That is just so fantastic for you to say. I really appreciate it. Lando writes in on the IG as well. And he says, love your podcast. Big thumbs up. Keeps me centered throughout the day. All right. Thank you, Mr. Lando. Hope I'm pronouncing your name right. La. Yeah, it's got to be Lando, right? Anyway, L-A-N-D-O. What else could it be? Nonetheless, everybody, that, boys and girls, wraps up another episode of Sober Speak. Once again, I'm doing big namaste hands and and bowing to you people. Thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for all the listener feedback. I listen to a lot of podcasts. They don't get this kind of feedback. And that just means that you and I have a community together, and I'm glad we can all support each other. And folks, you help Keep me sober a day at a time, and I'm so thankful for that, all right? God bless you. That's it. Um, Hopefully, we'll be back next week. I always say it's one week at a time. We'll take it. Well, I'll, I'll see what happens then, okay? God bless all of you. Love you.